Father, we do recognise again the privilege we have of being able to meet freely this morning, of having your, your living word in our language, in our hands. Indeed, of, of serving a, a God, of having our Father who loves to speak. And so we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would speak to us in the different situations that we find ourselves in. For those of us for whom it still feels like winter and life is dark and hard, would you bring words of comfort, of challenge, of encouragement? Speak to us, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen. Take great care, because words are powerful. Words can be a matter of life and death. They can do incredible good. You can say words that will build people up, that will encourage them, that will challenge them, that will spur them on. A five-minute conversation can literally change someone's life for eternity, forever. And yet, of course, the reverse is obviously true. Words can destroy and tear down and devastate and decimate someone. They can be a matter of life and death. I was reading an article recently that argued very strongly for this, the idea that words can destroy people. In particular, it showed the way that that often words are used to dehumanise someone and then to abuse them. So you call someone dog or filth or, or good for nothing or something horrible, whatever it is, and and soon you don't consider them to be human. You consider them to be an object, they become a tool, a means to an end, and once they stop being a person, then their spirits are destroyed and they are dispensable and removed. It's the reality for people around the world today, the power of words, the negative impact. People can be destroyed and then disposed of. And so what I find striking from Psalm 22 in our verses for this morning is you you seem to get both aspects of that from verse 6 to 11. You you get the dehumanization in verse 6. He feels like a worm. Not a person anymore. But then 7 and 8 as well, the, the taunts, people mocking him, laying into him, breaking him, isolating him destroying him. And and frankly, from 6 to 8, it feels a bit like the psalmist is on the edge. He's, he's on the edge of the precipice. Is this it? Is he going to give up? Is this the end? What's the answer? Well, before we get there, and we examine the solution from 9 onwards... Do you remember why Psalm 22? If you were here for the kids slot, I hope you do, because you've just had it. But why do we spend five weeks in one psalm at this point? Uh, Lots of reasons. Here are just, here are just three. Three to latch onto. The first is that it's simply part of scripture. We, we saw that in our two Timothy series before Christmas. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness by by scripture there, I take it Paul originally meant the Old Testament, and so here is scripture. The danger for any Bible teacher or for any church is that we can simply focus on our favourite bits and our little agendas, and, and when we do that, then 
God gets warped. We're selective with the picture of God that we allow ourselves to look at, to trust in, and if I can put it as starkly as this, he can become an idol. We can shape and mould and form him into the kind of God we want him to be. and We miss out the tricky and the troubling stuff and just focus in on the stuff that makes us comfortable. But as well as that, if we're selective with Scripture, then, then our discipleship gets warped too. We're selective with the bits of the Bible we preach or understand or look at, and, and so how we relate to him changes, how we follow him changes. And so our practice at Morden Road is to have a variety of teaching, different genre, different size chunks, sometimes a, a big chapter or two, and sometimes just a little bit. But it's worth getting to grips with Psalm 22 simply because it's Scripture. God's breathed out word for us. Secondly, as Sarah was saying to the kids, it's, it's very important. Psalm 22 is very important as we look ahead to Easter. As Andy was telling us last week, we've got this extraordinary privilege of having this psalm in our hands and, and it's as close as we can get, in some sense, to being inside the mind of Jesus as he dies on the cross. It's a psalm written by David, but but it feels a couple of sizes too big. It's the psalm that Jesus quotes from. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words on his lips. These are the commentary he gives us as to what's happening. But it's not even just from Jesus. It's the New Testament writers as well. It's the Gospel writers too. Let me just... Um, quickly run through and show you, if you're a kind of note-taking person, then here are some verses to look up later. But here is where the New Testament uses Psalm 22. Here is why Psalm 22 is so important for us. So in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus famously cries in anguish on the cross. and You see that in Matthew 27, 46, or, or Mark 15, verse 34. In verse 7, all who see me mock me, hurl insults, they shake their heads. Again, it's, it's the language of Jesus on the way to the cross, on the cross. Their words, their actions. He's being mocked and ridiculed. Again, Matthew 27, Mark 15, 29, Luke 23. Or verse 8, Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. More specifically, that they're mocking his trust in God. Matthew 27, 43. Or a bit further along, verse 15, his thirst on the cross. Remember John 19, 28, I'm thirsty. Or 22 and verse 16, his hands and his feet being pierced. 22 verse 18, his clothes being dispersed among the people. Get this in all four Gospels. John 19, 24, Matthew 27, 35, Mark 15, 24, Luke 23, verse 34. His clothes shared out among his enemies. And then interestingly, in 22, verse 22, Hebrews 2 picks this one up. Let me read to you uh, from verse 12, verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who were made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then verse 12, he, 
I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the, sem- in the assembly, I will sing your praises. So the writer to the Hebrews picks up 22 verse 22 and saying, well, because of God's faithfulness to his suffering Messiah, so the people, people like us, become his family, his brothers and sisters. There is praise and thanksgiving. It begins as an individual in Psalm 22, but by the end it's, it's the world praising God from an utterly alone and outcast and forsaken singular. So the end of Psalm 22 is a worldwide family praising and remembering God forever. And so in the minds of New Testament writers, Psalm 22 is vital. It's important that we get to grips with it because it's a commentary on the cross. So it's worth looking at because it's God's breathed out word. Secondly, it's because of the cross and because of Jesus that the use of Psalm 22 by the New Testament, but then as well it's helpful for us as Christians. Again, as Sarah was saying to the children and to us, there's a sense in which life can be hard. And when life is difficult, we can turn to the Psalms. I've said before, but Athanasius says the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because most of the Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. The Bible is a painfully honest book about the reality of suffering and hardship, the brokenness of the world. I think it's almost true to say that not a single page goes by without us encountering brokenness and suffering. And there's ultimately a mystery, I think, at the heart of suffering. But God does equip us with words to say from him when our own words fail us. So it's been my experience since being here uh, four years now that I know numerous people in this room who have turned to the Psalms, who do turn to the Psalms when life is hard. The Psalms are a precious resource. They help us to verbalise not everything, but something of the pain and the anguish, something of the hardships and yet our trust in God in the midst. Maybe that has been you, maybe that is you now, maybe that will be you. Whoever we are, these psalms are a gift to us to help us in the messy reality of life. And, and you see, when we tie those two things together, the, the words on the lips of Jesus, but the words to be on our lips as well, so we know that in the midst of the pain, something of how we respond, but also as Sarah was teaching the kids, because of the cross, because Jesus took these words upon himself so we can look to him and know finally we will not be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that finally we will not be forsaken. He was separated so that finally we will not be separated. And so that is the why of Psalm 22. It's helping us get to grips with the reality of brokenness, but helping us to appreciate Easter afresh. Now the structure of the psalm seems to be something of an alternating song. You get these highs and these lows. So last week, if you like, one and two were the lows. Three, four, five was the high. 
And you get that back and forth and back and forth, but then by the end, we're in rejoicing and praise. So let's get into 6 to 11 for this morning. And notice with me in verse 6, 7 and 8, it's the low and it's trouble. And as we said at the beginning, the trouble comes from people. The words of people. The power of the words of people. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, they shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The the forsakenness, the silence of last week, verse 1 and 2, is exacerbated and the volume gets higher because of the words of others. The experience, and whatever it is, again, we don't quite know whether it's sin, a particular sin, or just a situation and suffering that he's going through. It's hard enough in itself, but when others mock and taunt, when the people look to him and abuse him and insult him, so the situation gets far worse. It seems it's everyone, verse 6. He's despised by the people. Verse 7, it's all who see me mock me. Whether that is literally everyone or whether that's because it's poetry, it feels like everyone. He, he feels isolated and alone. and Regardless, he, he feels less than human. A worm. The thing about worms, they are disposable and unpleasant, associated with decay. His humanity's gone. And what are they saying? That they're saying, well, he trusts in the Lord, so let the Lord rescue him. Of course, for David, if God was simply an academic interest or a hobby or, or something that he knows about, then I guess to some extent you can take it or leave it. If someone mocks you because you're interested in maths, you can kind of shake that off. But he delights in God. It's his heart, his all, it's, it's love, it's who he is, his identity. It's interesting, isn't it? Could you say that you delight in God? Perhaps notch it up again. Would your enemies know that you delight in God? Because for David, it's why it hurts so much. Maybe you know something of this, something of the power of words to destroy, to undermine your faith. Perhaps particularly to hit you when you're down. Folk who love to mock your your faith, your confidence. In the public realm, it's the new new atheists and they seem to take great delight on blogs and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. In the private realm, maybe it's at school or college or university or, or a particular friend or a family member who knows how to press your buttons. Who knows how to hurt you. Maybe not at this scale or this extreme, but but do you know something of the power of words to unsettle and tear down and destroy? The temptation is, well, maybe they're right. Maybe God's not there. Maybe 
Maybe I'm just whistling in the dark, trying to feel a bit braver. Maybe I'm kidding myself. Maybe my life, maybe the person that I've built my life on is it's a lie. Of course, it is certainly the situation of brothers and sisters around the world. We prayed for them already this morning. People for whom being a Christian is costly. People who will firsthand know the painful, dehumanizing power of words. They become objects that can be disposed of. You probably saw this in the news a couple of weeks ago. It's a horrific picture. 21 Egyptian Christians about to be beheaded by Islamic State. Reminder of the stark reality of brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters around the world today. But it was the words underneath that struck me. Do you notice them? These are the people of the cross. The followers of the hostile Egyptian church. Mocking them, taunting them. They're saying... Look what happens to those who follow Jesus. Look what your Lord does for you. It's a warning for others. It's horrific. And yet, of course, for those 21, they're simply following in the footsteps of their king, the one who was mocked and murdered, the one who who fits... Psalm 22. Come with me to the cross and let me read to you from Matthew 27. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults. On him. Of course, the truth is he could have saved himself. But he chose not to for, for people like us. To save himself would have condemned us because we would still be in our sins. Jesus endured the taunts and the mocks and the insults and, and more for, for people like us. But in the midst of the trouble, the psalmist trusted. 
Do you know, often that's our problem in life, isn't it? That, that what we believe on paper doesn't match up with the reality of, of our daily experience. There's, there's a disconnect. And as we said, the, the Bible doesn't play down suffering. It's not rose-tinted. It doesn't filter out the hard bits. It's real. But it's also a book that promises us and, and illustrates to us that God is good and he calls us to trust him. And so verse 9. David writes, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. Do you see, in, in the midst of it, he trusts. He trusts in God's providence and God's presence. Have a look at his providence in verse 9. There's a clear sense, you see, that, that God is sovereign in life. He's in charge. It's as if he's saying, God, it was you. You brought me out of my mother's womb. I'm not a simple accident of nature. You, you looked after me. You've always been there, but, but where are you now? Lord, how have we got here? As a mere infant, when I was at my most helpless and needy and vulnerable, God, you've always been there for me. In the delivery suite, you brought me out of my mother's womb. My mother's breast, it was you that cared for me. Each step of the way, you've preserved and protected and provided for me. From day naught, God, you have been there for me. But where are you now? That, that past experience seems like a hollow mockery. It seems miles away of my present reality. God, you've always been there, but where have you gone? Maybe the implication again is, do you remember your goodness? Do you remember your past? Do you remember your track record? Again, like last week, last week it was four and five. His track record, corporate to his ancestors here, is personal. God, you brought me out of the womb. You looked after me. Where are you? I'm unable. I'm helpless. I'm lost without you. I need you. I need your presence and your protection and your provision. Don't be far from me. For trouble is near, and there's no one to help. He's very honest. He's very real. And as the psalm unfolds, King David's confidence does seem to grow. There is a certainty of prayers being answered. There's a certainty of... of the nations and the generations rejoicing because of God's faithfulness to the king. And, and as we said, it, it seems to fit better for Jesus. But at the cross, Jesus is finally forsaken. God, the eternal Son, as to his human nature, is for the first and only time separated from God the Father. The cry is not heard. The song goes, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch's treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
Do you see, Jesus is not spared suffering. Jesus dies, his, his heart stops beating, his lungs stop working. He's dead. But his sacrifice is sufficient. Because after the Friday comes the Sunday. After three days of death, the Lord raises him to life again. The psalm fits Jesus better than David. But can we take these words on ourselves, on our own lips? Do they fit us? Are they for us? J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, puts it well like this. He says, No doubt there was a sense in which our Lord's feeling of being forsaken was peculiar to himself, since he was suffering for our sins and not for his own. But as it was with the great head of the church, so it may be in a modified sense with his members. They too, chosen and beloved of the Father, may sometimes feel God's face turned away from them. They too, sometimes from illness of body, sometimes from peculiar affliction, sometimes from carelessness of walk, sometimes from God's sovereign will to draw them near to himself, may be constrained to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see, he's, he says it's right for us to take these words upon us because, because sometimes Christians can genuinely cry them out. When it feels like God is gone and life is horrible, and our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling when he feels distant and, and we feel alone and we're thinking of waving the flag and saying this is enough. Sometimes because of illness, sometimes because of our sin. Sometimes simply because he, he turns for a moment so that we will seek him. But you see, this side of Jesus, this side of the cross, we have the answer to verse 11. Because Jesus' name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's vital for us to cling to because in a real sense, we might feel his absence. God at times can, can seem distant and far off and removed. And yet, at the same time, we, we trust that he's with us. Because Jesus was utterly forsaken, it, finally we never will be. Now we're his family, now we're his children, now we have a status and an identity that is permanent. We're, we're loved and we're cherished. And of course, children are sometimes disciplined. But that's because they're loved. He's with us. And as he dies and is raised again, as he ascends to the Father, so he then pours out his Spirit upon his people. And we saw that in our previous series. God is always with us, dwelling in us, among us. We have a, a security and a certainty. And so do you see, friends, that there's a real, very real sense in which we can know something of God's absence. Maybe that's, maybe that's you today. Maybe, maybe you've got friends who know about that. Maybe you just keep it quiet. 
Maybe it's because of, of sin and rebellion and, and you're ashamed and you know something of his, his displeasure. Maybe it's simply that, that God feels distant and far off. You're just not sure why. But well, seek him and be assured that these words are for you. Psalm 22 can rightly be on your lips, in your situation, in your pain, in your life. And if you need to confess, then, then confess and seek him. Turn to him. Cry to him. Express your pain to him. But please be assured as well that because of Jesus, because he was finally forsaken, so we will never truly be forsaken. It's a promise he gives us actually in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. However dark life gets, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And of course, course as we finish, have you noticed which psalm comes next? Is that twig? That's, that's not an accident. Psalm 23. Even in the darkest times, even when we're not sure how it's all going to turn out, it, God is our shepherd. Even though we walk through the darkest valley, through the valley of the shadow of death even, he is there. He is always shepherding and always guiding. Because he is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of the Psalms. Thank you that you give us the words to shout to you when we don't know what to say. Thank you for the gift of Psalm 22, that you you give us this glimpse inside the suffering of Jesus at the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you for his suffering in our place. Thank you that he was forsaken so that we will never finally be forsaken. Father, we pray for those in this room or in this fellowship for whom these verses are something of reality of life. Various and varied hardships. We pray, Father, that, that they, that we might have that trust and that hope. That we might know your provision and your presence. And that we might trust you. And Lord, when we need to go with facts and not feelings, we pray that we might trust you. In your Son's name, for his glory. Amen.